You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at Northcote Library, Melbourne, on May the 4th, 2013. A full bibliography for this episode is available at splendidchaps.com. You want weapons? We're in a library. Books, the best weapons in the world. The room's the greatest arsenal we could have. Arm yourselves. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that can't rewrite history. Not one line. Please welcome your host, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. How many of you have been in this library before today? Yeah, awesome! Spending Chaps is a podcast. There's one a month. Basically, every month for, to celebrate the anniversary of Doctor Who, we've been looking at a certain Doctor and have brought a theme, and we'll be doing 11 of these shows from January through to November. What show number are we up to now, Ben, of those 11? Uh, this is... One, two, three, four, six, and six. Show six of how many? 14. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, maths, not our strong point. We're very excited to be part of Geek Week here at Northgate Library. And so, because we're in a library, the obvious thing to do is a show about books. So we thought we'd have a look at Doctor Who and books over the years. It is a surprisingly literate TV show, yeah, pretty much. It is. and I mean, it started off that way uh, because of the content of the show itself, and then it very quickly evolved a unique relationship, I think, among television programs with how it and the books about it and that continue the story of it uh, exist. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm really excited because I, when I first got into Doctor Who, it was largely through books. Yeah. Yeah, you would. <laughs> uh, it's also... It's the reason I wear these glasses, John. <laughs> should also point out that it is, of course, uh, May the 4th, and may the 4th be with you. Uh, it's, it's, also, uh, it's also World Naked Gardening Day. So if you feel the urge... Make, make of that what you That's will. That's why we put it in a library. We knew there'd be no plants in here, and we would be safe. The show started off uh, as an educational show. Back in the 60s, Doctor Who was devised to be an educational program, and it would teach you that Daleks were bad, for example. Uh, and... There's, and it came out of a kind of Wreathian view of the BBC as being a place that existed for education, not entertainment, which was a, a big thing for many years for the BBC. So books have always been in the blood of Doctor Who. And on our Facebook page, we actually asked people just to suggest stories which books had been important too. And there were loads. There are loads. It is amazing. I mean, we can't even go through how many, but uh, in The Angels Take Manhattan, for example, the, the book Melody Malone, Private Detective in New York Town, is, is vital to the plot. Uh, the Doctor himself is seen reading things, everything from the Beano Annual to uh, How to Speak to Betton. Uh, and, and The Time Machine, which was always one of my favourite books growing up. I was he, like, hmm, how ironic. The, the Doctor reads The Time Machine in uh, Paul McGann's telly movie. Uh, the Master reads War of the Worlds in Frontier in Space. Yes. Mind you, he also watches The Clangers, so uh, there's, no, there's no telling about his taste. In and the Doctor, of course, he met H.G. Wells, he met Shakespeare, he met Agatha Christie, Charles Dickens, uh, the Doctor and K-9 have read Beatrix Potter in, in Creature from the Pit, the French Revolution book from An Earthly Child showed up twice. There is a huge number of, of books both in and the show has referenced yeah. over the many, many years. And even in the most recent uh, episode that we saw, uh, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, uh, he says, I've been in loads of books. Um, <laughs> long history with books. In fact, even a couple of his companions almost ended up as fictional characters in a book when Jamie and Zoe nearly got trapped in a book in The Mind Robber, which, as we talked about in the second 
Doctor episode was incredibly meta because here there were fictional characters worried about being turned into fictional, fictional characters. characters. The worst thing that could happen to them. Weird. But also outside of the show itself, books have always been really important and two particular ranges were the target novelizations of the 70s and 80s and then the new adventure, missing adventure, eighth Doctor adventures of the 90s and 2000s. So we'll be looking at those mostly in tonight, as well as uh, many of the selections you see strewn around uh, us. Most, it's probably worth pointing out that most of the books you, you will see on the stage uh, this evening and, uh, and in front of us and indeed surrounding me um, are from our personal collections and a few people <laughs> that we know. Um, very few of them actually come from libraries, although there are lots of Doctor Who books in libraries. Uh, we always have guests to help us discuss these issues. And we have two fabulous guests tonight and a performance guest for you at the end of the show. But to start us off, who have we got, Petra? Our first chap knows all about books, being an editor and proofreader for many publishers, including Penguin, Pan Macmillan and Alan and Unwin. She's also a broadcaster and currently hosts Katie's Cut Lunch on Joy 94.9. Our other chap is an author and critic and has written Doctor Who stories for Big Finish. He's also written non-fiction for Metro, The Big Issue, Time Out, The Australian Book Review and Eureka Street. And his voice can be heard on the podcast Shooting the Poo. They're Katie Purvis and Dave Hoskin. So well, welcome to the show. Katie, how did, you, how did you become a fan of Doctor Who? What led you into Doctor Who? Well, I'm old enough to remember it when it was on TV in Australia in the 60s, actually. And uh, when my family got a TV when I was that high... Doctor Who was one of the first things we watched. So actually, I guess I am lucky because I've seen some of those um, episodes that no longer exist. Wow. <gasps> <laughs> and I have one of my earliest memories, and it's fixed very, very um, graphically in my head, is of the abominable snowman, the Yeti, in the snow. And I was terrified. I don't know why, but I was. And so, yeah, the classic hiding behind the couch thing. And then um, sort of kept on following it, but really got back into it in the John Pertwee Tom Baker years because it was firing then and we loved it. Watched it with my, my brother, brother and sister every night. Uh, I'm a bit like Ben in that uh, I first got into Doctor Who with uh, the Doctor Who technical manual, yes. which we have a copy of right here. Wow. How many people here have got it? Round of applause if you've got it. Yeah, it does seem to be one of the more um, frequently owned non-fiction yes. but I, I'm going to say that the, to the younger members of the audience, you cannot, you cannot understand how important that book was <laughs> when it came out. We didn't have an internet when that book came out. <laughs> mm. We wanted to know what the inside of the TARDIS looked like. We had to watch the TV show when it was on the ABC <laughs> or read this book. And it came out in hardcover, uh, which the ABC brought out, <laughs> and it cost $10, which was quite affordable, even, even back in those days. Mm. And, uh, yeah, no, it was funny, and everyone had that for a while. Any fan would go, look, look, it's a picture of Sonic Screwdriver, but, the, you know, blueprints and stuff. The recommended retail price on the back of this paperback copy is Australia, $6.95. Ooh. But there's Ooh. a sticker on it that says $1. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, that, that was actually lent to us by Michael Holt, who bought it in an op shop quite recently. You can build your own TARDIS. It's not as good as Alan's one, which is here in the library. It's actually, you look at it and <laughs> you can't really build your own Cybermen by looking at the Doctor Who technical manual. I tried, but <laughs> you really can't. But it was a, quite a good potted history of 
what Doctor Who was at the time. I'm there just reading about it going, ooh, Daleks, ooh, Cybermen, I'll get into that. And I got it from the bookmobile. And so I was like, all right, well, what else will I get from here? And I think they had um, Tewant Sticks as uh, Doctor Who and, <laughs> and the Auton Invasion. And I think they had, I think, one of David Whittaker's books, uh, the very first Dalek story. And for me, that was it. I'd already seen Star Wars by that point. So I knew what science fiction looked like. So when I read Doctor Who books, they look like Star Wars inside my head. Yeah. Now, there was a reckoning coming, though, because, <laughs> because when I finally watched Doctor Who, I think it was the arc in space and it's the opening model shot. You mean, you mean pretty much the only model shot they've ever replaced with CGI on the DVDs? Yeah. I mean, I'd seen the Star Destroyer coming over your head in the opening shot of Star Wars. You're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And then you look at the opening shot of the Ark in Space where this apology of a... <laughs> it looks like a dog turd rolled in silver. <laughs> pushed towards the camera embarrassedly and the, they've got the work experience cameraman. They're going, oh, look, will this do? And then they just go, look, we'll cut to the inside where it's all much better. And then the Wirren costume comes on. You're like, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. Where's George Lucas? He would sort this out. And then I went back to reading the books again. It was safer. But you actually came to the show from the books then? The books were I first. I did. I did. Doctor Who, as far as I'm concerned, was written by Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk. <laughs> and it was better, to be honest. Fair point. It was quicker. The actors said their lines are all perfect. I read. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I saw Doctor Who, uh, Doctor Who and the Mutants, uh, finally, and all of the actors in that tour, man, are appalling. But in the book, it's absolutely Academy Award-winning stuff. <laughs> I really, really cared when one of the like the two guards in that. Like you really, really care when one of them dies. In the in the, in the TV show, you're there going, oh, you've killed the wrong one. <laughs> you killed the one who can act and you've left that other bloke alone. Oh, come on. <laughs> you've led us nicely into the Tiger books. Perhaps, Petra, if you want to give us a little bit of history. Once upon a time, in 1973, the Universal Tandem Publishing Company decided to create a children's imprint to complement their adult tandem range. Target thought there might be some value in republishing three Doctor Who novels from the mid-60s, Doctor Who and the Zavi by Bill Stratton and two by David Whittaker, Doctor Who and the Crusaders and Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, though they thought the exciting adventure was probably implied and retitled it Doctor Who and the Daleks. The first of many new novelizations, Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion by Terence Dicks, would follow in 1974. Many of the original screenwriters would adapt their own scripts, often altering them to fit their original visions more closely than was possible on a BBC budget. But Terence Dix would become the best known of the target writers, contributing more than 60 titles in the range. In the 1970s, before VCRs and DVDs, the target novels were the only way to relive Doctor Who stories. They were so important, they ended up influencing the show they adapted. It was Terence Dix, for example, who first used the term Chameleon Circuit in the 1975 novel of the Terror of the Autons. In November 1983, Target trolled Vanham by releasing the novel of the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors, two weeks before its first airing. In what remains the biggest spoiler campaign any TV show has ever faced, fans across the country had to decide whether to read the book 
or wait for it to air. And if that wasn't enough, they raised the cover price to an astronomical £1.50. Target kept printing Doctor Who adaptations up to 1994, five years after the television series had been cancelled. In 2007, BBC Audio began a new series of readings of the Target novelisations, and since 2011, BBC Books have reprinted selected titles with introductions from current writers such as Neil Gaiman and Michael Moorcock. Now, I just want to mention, because there's quite a lot of, of young fans here, which we normally don't have at these shows, and I just want to tell you guys, in the 1970s and 80s, being a Doctor Who fan was rubbish. Like, yeah. it was just awful. We had nothing. There's no, like, no toys in any of the shops. Yeah, you, you know, you couldn't get the videos. You had to wait for the things to be on television. You got you the video, you couldn't skip straight to the good bit. You had to fast forward it because it was on tape. Yeah. Tape was a thing you had before DVDs. Sorry. Um, <laughs> tape was a thing you had before the thing you had before downloading it off the internet. <laughs> There was no iPlayer. The, the only merchandise we had were the Doctor Who books. The Target books were pretty much the only... And the annual. And, and the yeah. annuals, well, the which annuals, we will, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. mention oh, those And you had end. to pay for all of this too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it's just got four Yorkshiremen on stage, doesn't it? <laughs> Bucket <laughs> my day. <laughs> Um, but it was that thing of. But the funny thing was, because there were books, because I think books were considered to be acceptable for the BBC and, and for a show that was on the ABC, books were an acceptable thing to be a product, which also meant that every school library had them. So they were everywhere. It was just this thing that was always around. And I do remember that excitement of The Five Doctors when it came out because the cover was shiny. It had a shiny cover. Uh, That's yeah. how innocent we were back then. See, I, I didn't even know about that because when I was... I lived, grew up in a country town and our, my school library, my primary school library, had loads of uh, these. In fact, this, this one, um, Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons, was my favourite because of the creepy picture of the crab octopus thing with a giant eye on the cover, which, if you've seen uh, Terror of the Autons, looks amazingly better than what happened in the TV show. Um, so I read that. Lots of times. Uh, and, I, and I basically only had the ones that were in that library until I started to realise that oh, probably I could buy these myself. And it was when I used to go on trips to Sydney to visit relatives, which was a 12-hour driveway because I lived right up the north of New South Wales near the border with Queensland. Um, and I would go to the Galaxy Bookshop, which was the only science fiction bookshop that existed as far as I knew, uh, and buy Doctor Who novels. And it was amazing. It was like, it was like another Christmas every time we went. <laughs> So I collected them, and by the time I was uh, about 12, I had a collection of at least 200 Doctor Who books, mostly Target novelizations, but then also a lot of the, the non-fiction stuff that you can see there, and I took them into school uh, for one of the show-and-tell days that we had about collections, and after that day, everyone in school ran around the schoolyard calling me a Doctor Who freak because um, <laughs> the word nerd hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> But I bore that badge with pride, <laughs> people. Because they stabbed it onto your chest. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I wore that badge with pain. <laughs> now, because they were so ubiquitous, though, I never had any idea how many they actually sold. And I, I remember we asked you if mm. you could find anything, Katie, to yeah. indicate. Yeah, it's very difficult to find anything uh, about the SARS figures from the 70s and 80s. Obviously, there was no internet back then. <laughs> As we keep saying, but um, some, um, some people reckon there were 13 million target novelisations sold. They were phenomenons. Phenomena. And uh, the, as a sort of um, uh, contrast, the new adventures and the missing adventures typically sold about 20,000 apparently each, mm -hmm. yeah. which is still pretty good. 
Yeah. Um, but it's incredibly you know, hard to find now. Apparently, those um, first three novelisations sold over a hundred thousand each. So, and these days that would be they'll be. A phenomenal success, wouldn't it? A publishing success. Oh, absolutely! I, I mean, even the, the new the new Doctor Adventures. Um, one um, post I found said that the only science fiction or fantasy books to outsell them were the latest Harry Potter and the latest Terry Pratchett. So, wow! Yeah, yeah, pretty successful. And yet, this was a very quiet thing mm. in a lot of ways. I don't think anyone really, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't trumpeted at the time as being an amazing works. Yeah, it says, uh, it says that in the mid-80s, when Doctor Who was really at its peak, um, they were printing uh, 50,000 copies of each of the novelisations. Wow. That's a big print run. Um, it's not a big print run in America, but it's pretty big for, for the UK and it's certainly mm-hmm. big for Australia. I mean, when they first started, the idea for an ordinary viewer in Australia or England would be that they would never see these stories again. They would be shown once on television and that was it. This was the only way to relive these adventures. And like you've mentioned, a lot of those stories, the early stories got wiped and don't exist in any form now. So in fact, the target novels are probably the best way to try and and experience what some of those stories would be like. In fact, as you might argue, Dave, better. Mm. Shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of them. Some of them are shorter. Some of them, I remember the novelization for Terminus, uh, which is a fifth doctor story for those not familiar with it. Uh, It's really thick. Like, it's, a thick, it's at least twice as thick as your average Target novel. And I don't know why. Terminus was not that particularly interesting. It was a lot of running around corridors. and I mean, Stephen Gallagher is a good author, too. Like, he's gone on to have a real career as a novelist, too. He's not just a... I mean, Terence sticks with the best will in the world. No one's ever going to compare him to, I don't know, John le Carre or Salman Rushdie um, or even, I don't know, a great thriller writer. But Stephen Gallagher's gone on to have a career, you know, outside of doing Doctor Who novelisations. But in Dix's defence, um, the... <laughs> There's a phrase. We love him. <laughs> let's, not, let's, let's make sure that Should that is Should we call him Uncle Terry? Mm. Uncle, Uncle Terry. Uncle Terry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Terence. The, the, the um the target novelizations they they were weren't supposed to go over a hundred I think it was one hundred twenty four pages, um that was the publisher said this is what they're supposed to be sure he used stock phrases and all kinds of things like that but at, at the height of um the churning out of these books he was putting out he was writing one of those a week, mm. one a week yeah and yet they're still very readable, and you know. I'd also say the stock phrases actually make them more readable. I mean, I like the fact that Uncle Terry uses certain phrases again and again and they become familiar to us. For example, like, what kind of noise does the TARDIS make, Ben? <laughs> oh, wheezing, groaning noise, John. <laughs> uh, what, what kind of face does Peter Davison have? Uh, he has a pleasant open face. <laughs> and, or sometimes a young old face. <laughs> One thing I noticed when I was uh, flicking through some of the Third Doctor ones that I've just been reminded as I look for a description of the Doctor in Terror of the Autons is that um, some of those ones in the 70s just assumed that you knew exactly who the Doctor was and introduced him... I mean, there was a couple of stock phrases. One was, that mysterious traveller in time and space known only as the Doctor. Um, But uh, often you only get a description of him when characters are meeting him for the first time. So, for example, in, in Terror of the Autons, Joe meets him for the first time and it just says, perched on a stool at one of the benches was a very tall man with a shock of white hair. That's it. He's John Pertwee. You know what he looks like. Uh, is basically the message that you get from that. Well, it's also they're assuming that you are reading a book that's based on something that's on the telly. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing. It's a TV tie which I think sort of explains why the books were never recognised as being of amazing literary significance. People are there going, they're merchandise. They're a cash-in. 
Um, and while they're of enormous significance to people like me, um, I mean, I always used to, you know, when I was younger and silly, I always used to sort of think William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Terence Dix. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day his reputation will live among the giants. Well, he's always in our top three authors, I think. Yeah, it, it probably is not going to happen. But they, they didn't get reviewed in the in the broadsheet press, I don't think. I think there was maybe one, and they were quite sniffy about it. I think they reviewed a, a novelisation of The Sea Devils or something and said, look, it's okay. But it's based on a TV show. I mean, that's not the sort of thing that mainstream broadsheets review. They review highbrow stuff or even middlebrow stuff. They did reprint, uh, I think, four titles in Japan where the show wasn't airing. Mm. And they're quite astonishing because they have illustrations in them in which the artists have worked from the book... Mm. as the text. Yeah. So they're not working from the TV series at all. They've just picked up the book and go, okay, so Dalek is this kind of shape and it has this thing. And they're fascinating if you go and yeah, Google them because Those Japanese Daleks are amazing. They are mm. amazing. They don't look at all like Daleks, but they're really, really interesting. Yeah. They look like Chumblies. They're quite... And, and, and there's the one with the Autumn one which has this weird sexy cover of a lady mm. with no arms. It's like, <laughs> not right, Japanese. <laughs> not right. Can I, can I read something from a blog post I found? Sure. Yes. Uh, this is about Terence Dix. And again, I'm sticking up for Uncle Terry, <laughs> I guess. Um, as much stick... This is by um, uh, an author, a writer called Philip Sandifer. Um, as much stick as Dix gets for his writing style, which is admittedly formulaic, there are some things we need to acknowledge. First of all, the odds are very good that Terence Dix has done more to foster childhood literacy with the Doctor Who novelisations than you will ever contribute towards that cause in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> And for a lot of people, more than they will ever contribute to any public or charitable cause over their entire lifetimes. Literally thousands of people learn to read from target novelisations stashed away at schools across Britain. One thing is quickly clear to anyone who reads even a handful of Dick's novels is that the man is a genius at beginnings. I love this bit. I mean, here's just a few highlights from Dick's opening sentences, shorn of their titles just to make that frisson of unfamiliarity Dix is so good at stand out. It moved through the silent blackness of deep space like a giant jellyfish through the depths of the sea. This one's particularly good. Through the ruin of a city stalked the ruin of a man. Through the vortex, that mysterious region where time and space are one, sped a police box that was not a police box at all. The thing that's most obvious from any of these, and you can take your pick as to your favourite, is that they are remarkably deft at setting up compelling questions in one sentence. As for his larger prose style, it is remarkably well developed at what it is there for. It's easy to forget that the novelisations are children's literature and specifically designed to be exciting adventures that are over quickly and that leave the reader looking for the next one. Dix's prose style is perfectly adapted to that goal. It would frankly be a lesser writer who would add rhetorical flourishes and show off. Dix has no such pretensions. He gets out of the way of the story and tries to tell it as plainly and entertainingly as possible. Inasmuch as Dix has a style, it is visible only because there are about 8,000 pages of his Doctor Who writing for it to show up in. Terence Dix was great, but I think it is important to remember that he wasn't the only person who wrote them. Mm. And particularly towards the end of the range, they got a lot of the scriptwriters to novelise their own books. That was sometimes a great idea. <laughs> but then at other times, they chose Pip and Jane Baker. <laughs> now, I want to preface this. I actually quite enjoy most of Pip and Jane Baker's scripts, uh, but I think their dialogue is horrendous. It only works in Time and the Rani, and that only works in Time and the Rani because the Time Lords all speak in their usual Pip and Jane Baker flowery language speak, and everyone else speaks normally and goes, I can't understand a word of what these idiots are saying. <laughs> um, and it makes sense. It makes them distinct characters and it kind of works. But then when they write for Trial of a Time Lord or whatever, it just, it's crazy. Um, so I just want to read a very short 
passage, like a paragraph from Time in the Rani. Against a black cloth of infinite ebony, the TARDIS was being bombarded. Bolts of multicoloured energy, a fragmented rainbow, strafed the Navy Blue police box, tossing it hither and thither. An inharmonious cacophony of sound underscored each salvo. I think they're being attacked by an orchestra. <laughs> a gay orchestra. I don't understand. Anyway, so, yeah, it doesn't always work. But when you've got good authors, it, it really sang out. And Dave, you want to read from one of my, probably my favourite novelisation ever. This is the best Doctor Who book ever written. Correct. If anybody has seen Remembrance of the Daleks, there's a Dalek in it called the Special Weapons Dalek. Uh, it looks like a, a Dalek that's become a tank. Uh, and it has no character. It just turns up and shoots things. Um, and Ben Aronovich's genius, I think, is um, in knowing that action often on the page doesn't work as well as it might. So he decides to go into the Dalek's head and this is what he finds. The Dalek was insane. Radiation had altered the structure of its mind and made it mad. The mark of its insanity was that of all Daleks and the great race of Daleks, it had a name. It was called the Abomination. They had given it another name. In the Imperial Battle roster, it was listed as the Special Weapons Dalek. The Emperor had decreed its creation. They had ripped it from its birthing cradle, aware like all Daleks. They had taken it and placed it in its shell and given it functions. But the shell they gave it was wrong, twisted, a single function monstrosity, a vast weapon and the power plant to drive it. They led it to the firing range and had it destroyed to order. As it fired, the first backwash of radiation sleeted through its fragile body. It served in many campaigns. Pa Jaskutrek, the war of vengeance against the Mavellans, Pa Jaski Thal, a liquidation war against the Thals, and Pa Jas 410, the time campaign, the war to end all wars. Every time it fought, the radiation from its pulse gun saturated its life support chamber. Chromosome altered shape, its vestigial pituitary gland became active and hormones chased unfettered through its bloodstream. It became changed, twisted and insane. It committed the blasphemy of knowing who it was. The other Daleks feared it for its sense of self and for its name. They would have destroyed it. Only the will of the Emperor kept it alive. At 30 metres range, the special weapons Dalek halted. Its huge gun twisted in its mount. The fire in its belly erupted and was spat out the barrel at the renegade Daleks. In a single instant, the two Daleks boiled away into the atmosphere. The concussion rocked the special weapons Dalek backwards. Then it drove on, seeking new targets. That is why, thought the special weapons Dalek, they call me the Abomination. Writers would often use the books to, uh, you know, to capture what they were, they were originally intending to do. And one thing I noticed was sometimes the books are actually way more harrowing than the TV shows. The books can be more frightening because the simple act of... I mean, I think, I think Doctor Who always, certainly back then and to a degree now, worked best by... Uh, giving you the idea of what the fear was, but allowing you enough room as a child to not be terrified by it. So you knew that you could go, oh, okay, I understand that represents a terrifying thing. I also know it's a big pink fake snake on a, on a string. So that's fine. Um, but when they did the books, they would go back the other way. So this is a, a very uh, quick passage, which is from the novelization of Frontios by Christopher Bidmead, describing the machine that Tegan sees, which the, the tractators have built. It was a repellent sight, a huge and hideous assembly of parts of human bodies, shaped something in the form of a giant tractator. White bones tipped with metal cutters scraped against the rock, while rotting hands polished the surface smooth. Through illuminated windows in the body, Tegan glimpsed more mechanically gesticulating human arms and legs in an advanced state of decay. It was a machine built 
from the dead. On screen, it's a big cardboard box thing. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, doesn't it basically, it's just got a dead person in it. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. just got metal arms that go... Mm. Like, it's mm. a bit weird. If but memory the, serves in that book as well, there's a floating human head that's sort of translating the tractator's speech. So they've got a rotting corpse's head talking to them throughout the entire story. And you're there going, Christopher, how were they going to do a floating human head... <laughs> A rotting human head, yeah. you lunatic, as if they were ever going to get away with that or be able to achieve it. Katie, you yeah, had a piece um, you want to read? One of the widely sort of regarded as the best one, best author is Malcolm Hulk, who um, I think wrote eight of the novelisations. Um, one of the ones he wrote is called Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which is actually the Doctor Who and the Silurians. If you've read a lot of, of novelisations, you know that one of the rules the authors apparently were given was never to get inside the Doctor's head. So everything is either straight narrative or it's from the point of view of another character. One of the great things about this particular book is that uh, he gets... He, he fleshes out the minor characters from the television show and gives them a fantastic backstory. And one of the characters is Miss Dawson, who apparently in the television series... It's a long time since I've seen it, so I've forgotten, but she basically just is there for exposition and to get things explained to her. But this is what he writes about her in the book. Miss Dawson was worried... She had been one of the first scientists selected by Dr Lawrence to work at the research centre and she was thrilled to get the job. All her life she had had to live in London, which she had come to detest because of her elderly mother. Her brothers, older than her and all scientists, had got married and gone to live in America and Australia. Miss Dawkins had been the one left at home to look after their ailing mother. True, she had had some interesting research jobs in London, but whenever she saw an advertisement for an electronic scientist needed abroad, or even in another part of Britain, her mother's health had mysteriously taken a turn for the worse. The years rolled by and people stopped calling her a young woman and said instead, such a faithful daughter. Sometimes she met men who seemed to want to marry her, but her mother always knew somehow and promptly became ill again, so that Miss Dawson even had to stay away from work to look after the old lady. In her heart, Miss Dawson feared the moment when people would stop asking, why don't you get married? And replace it with the dread, why didn't you get married? Wow. That's heartbreaking. Isn't it? That's wonderful. And this is in a book written for kids. Yeah. Like, it really gives you a, a window into yeah. what adult life is like. Yeah. Mm. It's Malcolm, quite extraordinary. At the time, anyway. Malcolm Hawke starts The Dinosaur Invasion with a whole piece about a, a gentleman from Glasgow who's come down to London to go to the World Cup. It's been evacuated because the dinosaur attacks. He spent four days drunk and then he gets eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the final line is like, um, and as the giant claw attacked him, Shuey decided he would give up drinking whiskey. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a brilliant piece and it just starts the book off with this whole other story about these other people. It's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. He does the same with the Silurians as well who don't know what all the human characters are called so it's looking at the brigadier so it decides his name must be fur under nose because he's got a moustache <laughs> yeah. his sort of trademark is that all of his stories are told from a multiplicity of viewpoints and that he refuses to judge them even the worst of them um, like the people who are minor villains like Butler in Invasion of the Dinosaurs has got a scar and Sarah goes oh, how did you get the scar in a fight he's like well Actually, I was a fireman and there was a baby and I saved the baby from the fire. And she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I thought you were just a baddie. <laughs> I do want to mention that three of them, um, the three that kicked it all off, were published uh, much, much earlier, as I alluded to before, in 1964. Uh, and one of those is the, the probably one of the most famous ones, uh, which was originally called Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. Uh, I think every book should have that title. Every I'm should. so disappointed. Well, they, not only did they cut it from the Daleks, but I would have thought, like, you know, Snake Dance should be Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Dark Places of the Inside. <laughs> you know, I think every, everything should be an exciting adventure with... The amazing thing about it is it was basically written as if that was the start of Doctor Who. And we, and we know, of course, uh, now, because it's readily available, that Doctor Who started with a completely other story, uh, An Unearthly Child. The first episode of which, amazing. Next three episodes, Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the cavemen, as we That's have um, previously yeah. referred to it. But this starts off the story as if that never happens and, in fact, completely rewrites the start of the show. So Ian is still a school teacher, but he's a school teacher teaching science because he's basically an out-of-work rocket scientist... <laughs> trying to get, and he's driving home from a failed uh, job interview, having had a terrible day because he tore his favourite sports jacket and spilled his spilled tea on his tie, and then gets lost on a moor in the fog, um, on a common, sorry, on Barnes Common. Um, and while he's lost in the fog, he spots a, a woman. He keeps describing as a girl, but it's a woman wandering along the the out of the fog, going, "Oh, help me." who turns out to be Barbara, who has taken Susan home, insisted on driving her home, which she never let Barbara do, uh, and, got, and then they got into a car accident with an army lorry where the guy driving the army lorry died and then they meet the doctor out on the moor and he's carrying an everlasting... It's just bonkers, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's all, and it's all told from the first-person perspective of Ian. So it's Ian's internal monologue as he's going, yeah, I started my car and it wouldn't... You know, I stopped the car because I couldn't tell where I was going in the fog and... It's just mental. And so the first chapter or so is just Ian going, who is this doctor guy? He's creepy. So, yeah, it's really weird. If you, can, if you get a chance to read it, read it because it's crazy. Um, but it's, it's so much fun though. It's just so different. And the character of Ian comes across as very different because he doesn't know Barbara. He meets her for the first time on this common. At the same time, he meets the doctor and they have to develop their bond as it goes along. So it's really an interesting alternate take. Well, from the beginning of Doctor Who, the next big stop for the Doctor Who books was the new adventures. And Petra, I believe you have some background for that for us. At the end of the 1980s, the Target imprint was owned by Virgin Publishing, who had continued to print novelisations of classic Who. But they were running out of stories and had taken to adapting unexpected titles like Victor Pemberton's 1976 audio adventure, Doctor Who and the Pescatons. In 1994, the last Target Doctor Who book was published a new edition of The Talons of Wen Chiang. It was the end, but the moment had been prepared for. When the show went off air in 1989, they were granted permission to create new stories for The Doctor and Ace, and the initial four releases were so popular, they led to a monthly series, and a further missing adventures range involving previous Doctors and companions. The new adventures were described as being stories too broad and deep for the small screen. That would take Doctor Who into previously unexplored realms of time and space. From 1991 to 1997, Virgin published 61 new adventures and 33 missing adventures. In 1996, after the success of the Paul McGann telemovie... The BBC decided to take the Doctor Who novels back in-house and started the Eighth Doctor Adventures through the Virgin line continued without the Doctor with an original companion created by Paul Cornell, Bernice Summerfield, as the protagonist until 1999. 
The BBC published 73 Eighth Doctor Adventures between 1997 and the launch of the revived television series in 2005. Originally intended to have no connection with the version range, many of the new adventure writers moved across to the new series and started adding references to the virgin books. During his adventures, the Eighth Doctor lost his memory and spent a century living on Earth, fought off the romantic attentions of his companions, encountered the fallout of a time war between the Time Lords and a mysterious enemy, and is eventually forced to destroy Gallifrey and all of his people to save the universe. You know, the kind of stuff they'd never do on television. <laughs> In 2005, BBC Books retired the range as part of the focus on the new series. The literary adventure of the Eighth Doctor briefly continued into the short trips anthologies published by Big Finish Productions and are now confined to audio adventures. Now, you wrote some of those, didn't you, Dave? I wrote one. Of the, of the Big Finish? Of the short trips, short yeah. Trips. Yeah. Now, didn't you, didn't you pitch a story set in the library? You're just trying to stir up a fight, aren't you, Jean? <laughs> <laughs> there was... Um, right. I was, <laughs> I was invited to pitch by a friend of mine called Richard Salter, who's a terrific man who I've never met, and he said, do you have an idea for a story? The theme of the collection was communication. I'd uh, had an experience in St Kilda Library where I, I picked up a book, I think it was about uh, a Nazi spy... And I opened it up and somebody had written in the margins some really anti-Semitic stuff. I was like, ooh, that's really nasty. It was like sort of somebody coming up and sort of whispering something really nasty in your ear. And I had an idea for a story where somebody was actually being followed around by marginalia. And I thought, that's a terrific, creepy idea. Let's pitch it. And so I did. And I first got inklings that there might be a problem when uh, I met Rob Shearman in England and I said, Rob, I'm working on this story where creepy things are going on in a library. Um, there's nothing like that coming up on the TV show, is there? And, he's, and he just smiled at me. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and I said, who's writing it? And he just smiled at me. And I said, it's bloody Moffat, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And this was after Blink, so at that point, Stephen Moffat could do no wrong. Um, and I'm like, do you think I'll be okay? He's like, oh, you might be. <laughs> As it turned out, I wasn't, and I had to completely rewrite my story because they said you can't have anything that's remotely like anything that's on the telly. So I had to change my story completely. So there was no library at all. Uh, but it's all right because it was a much better story. I ended up setting it in a dead letter office and somebody was getting mysterious, like the guy who works in the dead letter office rather than marginalia in books, it was in dead letters. We should just explain for those people who don't know what mail was like before email. Mm. <laughs> that you had to pay for it? Yeah, you had to, you had to send letters uh, through the post and if, uh, if the person who it was sent to couldn't be contacted and there was no return address on the letter, it would end up in the dead letter office. Mm. And there's these letters just lying around uncollected. Yeah. We're so old. Mm. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's just that mm. some of our audience today is really young and it's, mm. that's unusual. Mm. Uh, but we've, we've got an extract from your story here, Dave, that you've uh, asked. If if I'd, Gee, I hope well, it's good. Well, <laughs> I hope it's good too. I'll, I'll read it for you. The headache woke him up the next morning. Sam took two aspirin. 30 minutes later, two more. He briefly considered calling in sick, but soon began packing his bag for work. Behind the headache... His mind still churned with the thought that something 
really hungry was on the prowl. He had to get to them before they got to him, and the office was the only source of new information that might save him. Trying to ignore the pain, he stared at the pavement all the way to the station. After boarding the train, he pulled out his jury-rigged book of letters. He began drawing again, filling up the corners and the margins with random little curves and lines. Even as the pain spiked and he closed his eyes, his hand kept moving. Somehow it felt like the right thing to do. Clever boy. Gradually the feeling of being watched crept back. Sam was sure he could feel a gaze, could swear that someone, maybe even someone really hungry, was on the train. Carefully he opened his eyes. Directly across from him sat a businessman. He was completely unremarkable, but Sam kept watching him right up until the train plunged into a tunnel. For a long moment, the lights went out. Sam half expected the businessman to disappear, but when the lights returned, he hadn't moved at all. Is this who you've been looking for? Something very like a long black maggot blindly squirmed its way out of the businessman's hairline and oozed down his forehead. The businessman paid it no attention, not even when it reached his eye. Just as it disappeared into the man's tear duct, Sam recognised what it was. Not a maggot, but words. A sentence. A sentence had just crawled down the man's face. A sentence consisting of the words, She's going to tell you. For just a moment, Sam couldn't take in what had happened. And then, Need to delete those emails, uncoiled from the businessman's ear. And another, trickling upward from his shirt collar. Sam could see the businessman's entire train of thought. Three seats away, a grossly fat woman stared out the rushing darkness of the tunnel. Sentences heaved over the contours of her chubby cheeks, betraying how hungry she felt. Next to the fat woman, lyrics swirled around the eyes of a teenager, pulsing to the beat of her iPod. And Sam could see it, written all over their faces. He could see what everyone was thinking. If you want to read the rest, you'll have to find a copy of Short Trip's Transmissions, including that story by Dave Hoskin. This, this whole world, I've got to say, this whole world was a complete mystery to me. I, I'd never read any of these books. I kind of knew they How existed. Dare you? Uh, I, was, I was aware they were out there. Um, but, I mean, you, you, you too, I think, you know, yeah. Ben and Dave, you too, because I think Katie's well, we... a normal person like me. Uh, you too. <laughs> You were, you were fans of these at the time, though. You well, were... Dave and I met in 1997, and they were sort of, you know, the, the Virgin Range was just drawing towards its end, uh, the Doctor Who end, at least, uh, at that time. But, uh, and I got into Doctor Who books, like I said, with, with the Target ones early on, and I loved them. But then once the Target books ran out, I was like, well, what's going to happen next? And, and actually, one of the things that I'd completely forgotten about um, that I found when I was researching for this show was that when they published the, uh, the novelisation of Survival, the last ever Sylvester McCoy story, the last one before it was cancelled in 1989, there's a postscript in the back from the editor of The Range, Peter Darvel Evans, um, where he says, the publication of this book marks an unprecedented event. For the first time since Target novelizations began, we have published the novel of the last televised Doctor Who story with no immediate prospect of more new stories to novelise. TARDIS followers should not despair. We shall continue to publish target novelizations as long as there are television stories still to be novelized. And starting sometime in the second half of 1991, we shall start to publish new, completely original Doctor Who novels. The Doctor's adventures will continue onwards from here, from the end of survival. 
That blew my mind. <laughs> blew my mind. He was, there was going to be new Doctor Who stories, even though it had stopped on TV and the BBC weren't doing it. It was going to keep going. It also marks, I think, a quite fascinating changeover because a lot of the New Adventures writers, people like Paul Cornell and Gary Russell and uh, Russell T. Davies wrote one of the one of them. Yeah, these are Gareth Roberts. These are all the people who are running Doctor Who now. It's kind of interesting that they came in as fans, which I think is a bit of a changeover for the show as well, that up until this point it had been very much professional English TV writers who wrote everything. You know, it was, it was a gig that you did yeah. you know, between the... Juliet Bravo and The Bill. Yeah, and now this was the start of the changeover period where the people who were new to making Doctor Who in, in any form, and at this time it was books, were people who'd grown up watching it and loving it. And, and that was part of the ethos of the Virgin Range, was that not only were the people writing it people who'd grown up watching Doctor Who, but the people reading it were people who'd grown up watching Doctor Who and they weren't children anymore. They were teenagers or they were young adults um, or even adult adults. And they wanted to read Doctor Who stories that were aimed at them. Looking back at them, you realise that they were the angry young men phase of Doctor mm. Who. Like the first three books are by uh, John Peel, uh, Terence Dix, Nigel Robinson, who had all done novelizations before and they were seen as safe pairs of hands. The fourth one's by Paul Cornell and he wrote this book that blew a lot of people's minds. Um, you look at it now and you go, this is clearly a book written by a young man who wants to do everything he's ever wanted to do with Doctor Who and he calms down a lot later on. But that first book is quite extraordinary for all the imagery that he puts into it. And Mark Gatiss is the same. The best thing he's ever done, in my opinion, that's not the League of Gentlemen, is his first Doctor Who book, Nightshade, mm. because again, he's grabbed it and said, right, this is how Sylvester McCoy should have been, because he doesn't like Sylvester McCoy very much. But it's a very loving, uh, well-written book about his nostalgia about Doctor Who. Um, but the thing that Paul Cornell does is he says, we are not going to just have the TARDIS's wheezing, groaning. We're not going to just have young old faces. We can write books that are literary. We can start alluding to things that are, you know, there's a wider universe out there. So suddenly the Doctor is aware of who Sid Vicious is. And in some ways that dates them a lot. They feel like, you know, angry young men and like a lot of angry young men, you look back at it and you go, it's a little bit embarrassing. Like you start swearing a bit too much because you think it's terribly cool. And the BBC were like, can you stop that? One thing that's interesting though, you're talking about it being by angry young men. And interestingly for me, most of my favourite books from the New Adventures range, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, were written by a woman, Kate Orman, who's not only a woman but an Australian woman who, who, from Sydney um, who was the only woman to write for the New Adventures and one of very few women who wrote for the BBC books that came after them. Um, and one of the, there were a couple of novelizations, or at least one, the, the survival one was written by Rona Munro who wrote the TV show. But um, Kate Orman has this bizarre sort of a different, thing that she does like she clearly loves Sylvester McCoy's doctor but also every book she writes she does something horrible to whichever doctor she's writing about uh, I made a little list she has him psychically possessed um by a living god um and trapped in a unit holding facility for three weeks while he's being experimented on and having LSD flashbacks in which his psychic powers from the possession lash out and cause horrible destruction <laughs> And then he gets stabbed by Ace. Um, that happens. Uh, in another one, he's beaten and tortured for weeks and has to feign death. Uh, and then later on, has a double heart attack. Um, 
and gets probed by a mental leech 19 times, uh, suffering uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and in a a coma for two weeks. He gets telepathically probed in another book until he bleeds from the eyes. He gets stabbed in the shoulder where it's established in the books Time Lords have an extremely sensitive nerve cluster in their shoulder. (laughs) He's psychically forced to relive all his past moments of pain. He nearly dies of hypothermia. Uh, He has another heart attack at a funeral in So Vile a Sin and in the room with no doors. um, He's holding... This is quite awful, but he's holding a baby and he gets shot with an arrow through the baby... Between his second and third ribs, he goes into a coma and gets to, to try and heal himself, but his companions think he's dead, so they bury him alive and he has to dig himself out. <laughs> ben, Ben, what about the baby? Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, no, the baby just dies. It doesn't get, doesn't get tortured. I mean, it's horrendous. Don't, don't get me wrong. The books do tend to go much more into what would happen to these people if they were living this yeah, life where a horrible real. thing happened all the time. And I found that really interesting. And there's also a lot of romance in the books. And it's funny how the, as, a, as a continuation of the original series into the new series, it, it sort of makes a lot more sense mm. as a bridging step rather than if you just, you know, had watched the last Sylvester McCoy series and came in for Rose. Like, it's... It feels, yeah, to me like I can see the, the development of Doctor Who in that period. And, of course, a lot of these people, we said, went on to create Doctor Who and use a lot of these Well, I did reread, themes. like, Russell T. Davies wrote a book for the Virgin New Adventures called Damaged Goods, and there is no way on God's green earth that they would ever make it for telly because it's one of the most violent, sexy things you've ever seen. But everything that he would do for Doctor Who is right there. There is a character called Tyler who lives on a council estate. The doctor's got a swaggering bisexual companion who stops off to have a shag while on the hunt for a long-lost Gallifreyan superweapon that's left over from a time war. <laughs> and you're just there going, it's all here. Every single thing that he would go on to do in the series, like the domestic with the cosmic, it's all there. It's all playing out on this council estate. It even goes completely mental in the end and has a giant robot thing stomping over the horizon. I'm like... <laughs> This is the ending of The Next Doctor. It's even got a woman in the middle of this robot, which is controlling it, which the Doctor then basically turns off with the power of love. This is an extract from that book. Bev did not notice the man at first. He stood in one of Red Hamlet's side alleys, next to the skips, in darkness. He must have edged forward a fraction, ambient light revealing a smudged impression of his clothing, a cream jacket splattered with mud and a battered white hat. The rim of the hat should have kept his face hidden, like that of the tall man. But despite the dark and the distance, Bev could see his eyes. They were looking at her. Bev forgot her mother's plight as she stared back at the little man. She thought he smiled at her, just a small smile, but one which gave no comfort. Bev thought of her storybook of tales in which brave knights battled across swamps and mountains, fought dragons and eagles and witches, all to reach a wise old man who might have the answer to a single question. Bev always imagined that these old, wise, terrible men must have long white beards and flowing robes, but now she realised that they looked like this, small and crumpled and so very, very sad. The man lifted his head, Bev imagined he knew what she was thinking. Then he returned his gaze to the two figures beneath the lamplight. Bev jerked her head in that direction also, flushed with a sudden shame that she had forgotten her mother 
and she saw that the tall man was leaving. He got into his car. As the engine started, the noise seemed to wake the night out of its stillness. Young, drunk men could be heard singing, far off on the Baxter estate. On the top floor of the quadrant, a Christmas party erupted into screams of laughter, and beyond that, as ever, the faint rumble of traffic on the bypass. It seemed to Bev that none of these sounds was new. They had always been there, but held back by the tall man's presence and now released once more. Bev raced back to the flat, slamming the door shut behind her. A quick glance around the front room allayed her dread that thieves had stripped the place bare, which was something of a Christmas miracle in itself. She leapt into bed, quickly wiping her dirty, wet feet on the sheets. She shivered, only now feeling the cold, and she worried that her mother would come back to find her shaking and realise that she had spied on her. But for once, Mum did not look into her bedroom. Bev heard the front door click and guessed from the noises that Mum had settled in the armchair. After a few minutes, there came the sound that had first alerted Bev to the mystery, that of her mother crying. After 20 minutes or so, Bev fell into an uneasy sleep. She dreamt of snow, of tall men and small men, and of terrible bargains being made at night. They build their own version of the Doctor, and it's, and, but they also puncture that version. It's, it's often looked back on as a time when they really build up the Doctor as being a very dark figure who's very manipulative. They build up the Seventh Doctor particularly as a guy who will destroy whole planets in order to save the whole universe if that's what he feels has to be done. Um, but then they come back and they puncture that. There's a, there's a book, um, Head Games, where he meets Mel again, and Mel's horrified by what the Doctor's become, and that starts his sort of journey to redeem himself, sort of. Uh, there's also a great bit in that where... Uh, his current companion says, you were there when he regenerated, how did it happen? She says, oh, we kind of bumped his head on the TARDIS console and his new companion just loses it, just laughs. Um, of course, it's human nature. Um, but some of them are really like, just great novels in their own. And one of, like, one of my favourites is uh, Venusian Lullaby. It's a missing adventure featuring the first Doctor where you basically find out what Venusians are like. The third Doctor's always talking about Venusians. Turns out they lived three billion years ago on Venus and they have a completely alien civilization, which is really incredibly well detailed and it's a it's just a really great sci-fi novel as well so I, i'd encourage you to get into them i really love them i love them to bits so we've got a little bit of a show and tell to finish on but before we do that let's do prizes oh prizes. prizes i have doctor who character encyclopedia with all 11 doctors and more than 200 friends and foes katie tell us what you've got there <laughs> Where's the Doctor? <laughs> That's right, it's like, where's Wally, but with Doctor Who? So, you have to find the Doctor, Rory and Amy amongst, like, yeah, thousands on time. Jadoon on or, the moon. Or Jadoon. My favourite one is there's a, um, there's a cyber conversion factory in which lots of happy people are waving at each other on... <laughs> on hey, I've been turned into a Cyberman! Me too! Are we giving any away to our We listeners? are, yes. So, thanks to Penguin Books Australia for providing these wonderful books. We're going to give away a copy of the Character Encyclopedia and all also a copy of Where is the Doctor? All you have to do is go to the website, splendidchaps.com, find the post that this episode is on, dear podcast listener, and leave a comment. You'll go into the virtual door prize. Uh, also mentioned, we do have a show coming up about the fifth Doctor, uh, Five slash Fear, looking at Peter Davison's time in the TARDIS and also the concept of fear in Doctor Who. That's on May 19th at the public bar. You'll find all the details at splendidchaps.com. As we head into the end, we want to do a little bit more of a show and tell because there are, of course, many other types of books. Some good, some not so good. Yeah. Um, 
one just amused the hell out of me because I got lended the other day. It's Doctor Who 25 Glorious Years, which I thought was a bit mean-spirited because there's been 50 of them. And <laughs> I think they've just chosen a few at random. But then luckily, Ben found a copy of this, which is Doctor Who 25 Glorious Years. So between the two of them... There's 50! <laughs> This is, um, this is my copy. I, I got this when it came out. I was so excited because it, it was one of the first big glossy ones I got. But uh, I found something when I was looking through it. This is amazing. Uh, for those of you who are fans of the new series, right, this is an interview with uh, John Nathan Turner. I used to find the constant attempts by certain of the fans to find out what's going to happen intensely irritating. In a vast organisation like the BBC with information going all over the corporation by computer not email, by computer. <laughs> it is comparatively easy for the moles who are Doctor Who fans to tap into this information and then spread it outside. At one time, I used to put phony information on my chart. On one famous occasion, I put up a title, The Doctor's Wife by Robert Holmes. <laughs> and then tried to keep a list of everyone who came into the office. Of course, that proved impractical, but the very day after we gave it up, what should I read in one of the fanzines that a report we were doing a story called The Doctor's Wife? <laughs> I never do a story called The Doctor's Wife. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, what I bet, though, Neil Gaiman is such... He's a big Doctor Who nerd. I bet he knew about that. I bet he did it on purpose. <laughs> so that's that one. You can see also over here, we didn't mention the annuals. So we mentioned the annuals before. Now, the annuals were a crazy thing where every year some people who'd never seen Doctor Who in their lives ever would write some stories about the show. This one is one of the best ones. It's from, it's from the time, as you can tell, by the cover of Colin Baker. But it's, a, it's a, like an anthology of stories from previous annuals, most of which are comics, but some of which are prose. And in the second Doctor cartoons and illustrations, he's always wearing the massive stovepipe hat <laughs> that he almost never wore, uh, just because it's very distinctive. So there's, that's great. It's got a whole bunch of different stories. Sometimes the art is incredibly amazing. Uh, sometimes the art is incredibly not. Amazing. Um, but it's, they're good fun. That's a really great one. And the annuals actually made me think of the Doctor Who quiz book series. This is Doctor Who quiz book of dinosaurs. Uh, there were about four or five of these. I've got three of those. Wasn't... <laughs> and there's, and there's, three, there's three general quiz books. There's the Doctor Who quiz book, and the oh, Doctor yeah. Who second quiz book, Doctor Who third but quiz book. But those were nearly normal. Wasn't there one about the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, the Doctor Who I don't quiz have book that of the... one. No one has that. It's no. rare. No. Um, because the only question is, was it good? It's like, no, it was crap for all involved. But I, I wanted to quickly read you a section from the... Uh, Dr. Quiz Book of Dinosaurs. Chapter 1. Great snakes. The doctor looked up from his space-age breakfast at his two able assistants, Tegan and Nyssa. Tegan, the jolly Australian girl who used to be their hostess. and Jolly? Uh, jolly. And, <laughs> we told and, you they were written by people who'd never seen the show. <laughs> and Nyssa, the almost human girl from the planet Traken, who knew all about bioelectronics. Nyssa's so clever, she's too good to be a human, the doctor thought to himself. <laughs> And she isn't, so fair enough. It's such a gloomy day, he said aloud, polishing off his vitamins and caramel. We ought to go for a time trip. Let's, said Nissa coolly, finishing her breakfast. Ready, said Tegan, bolting hers. The doctor moved to the control console and, shooting his cuffs, keyed in a coded message to the TARDIS computer, muttering under his breath, 1350000, the equator, latitude O. Where are we going? Tegan asked eagerly. Ah, the doctor looked up. I've just keyed in 135 million years ago and I thought we'd go to West Africa, latitude nought, the equator. Great, Tegan chortled. What are we going to see? <laughs> wait, and, wait and see, said Doctor Who, but not 135 million years. <laughs> doctor Who pressed the time warp key. The TARDIS shook, control lights flashed. And before you could say who, the exit sign lit up. We're there, announced Doctor Who, and strode over to the door. 
He opened it and together they stepped out into the blazing sunshine. He set off, blazer over his arm, leading the way over a slight rise in the grasslands. Suddenly, Tegan screamed. Now what is it, Doctor Who sighed. Look, over there, Tegan pointed, clutching his arm. Great snakes, Doctor Who exclaimed as he spied a great green lizard some way away. Or rather, great lizards. They're dinosaurs! <laughs> now, the thing that gets me, though, is that the version of Doctor Who, the vision of Doctor Who in this book and in the annuals, actually makes more sense for what a TV show about a time-travelling, educational kind of guy for the BBC. It's a show you imagine they, they should have made, but thankfully didn't. They made something much better. Tegan has clearly taken ecstasy just before that. <laughs> it was the 80s. Hey! <laughs> Doctor, me so jolly. <laughs> Actually, this is a similar but earlier one. Uh, Doctor Who discovers early man. Um, which doesn't even really have a plot. It just says, join the Doctor on his adventure to find out about early man. So he goes back in time and looks at early man. <laughs> By which he means, you know, pre-human humans. But it did come with a poster. Uh, yes, it's no longer in here, sadly. And, and also one of the other books over on this display here, on loan from our own sound technician, David, is the Doctor Who cookbook. Oh, yeah. Uh, which contains such great recipes as Kipper of Traken. <laughs> hey! And for fans of Enlightenment, Rack of Lamb, that's a really subtle joke. <laughs> they're, all, they're all really just puns. Like, here's one uh, listed under the first Doctor, Meddling Monkfish Chowder. <laughs> this is an insane book. I recommend you get it if you ever can. It's like weird 70s dinner party food. It looks like it should have been for charity, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> you, you get to discover how one of the special effects guys makes paella. That's useful. Uh, <laughs> And what I like to think of as a companion book to this was a, a book called uh, the Doctor Who Pattern Book, which sadly we couldn't get hold of. We which... have it oh, so are you in it? Has it? Oh, please! Oh, awesome! This is Holy Grail stuff. Find the pictures. Find the pictures. In here, there are some pictures of the most awkward-looking models in the world. This is a K9 you can make. There's also a knitted version. Oh, this book is in a bit... Um, I'm going to be very careful. My, my nan made me the knitted version of this, but because she'd never seen Doctor Who, she just kept stuffing it until there was no room left. <laughs> so he was mostly spherical <laughs> with a head. Uh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh, there we go. There's some people dressed up as companions. Basically, this is, a, this is the world's first cosplay manual. <laughs> So uh, if, they're, if they're out there, I know that um, Tansy, Rainer Roberts and some of the other people on the Verity podcast want there to be a Doctor Who costume book. It's already been done! Yeah. <laughs> Here it is. There's also a thing for how to knit a jumper that looks like the opening credits of Doctor Who as the star field forms the face of Peter Davison. Oh, I want that. Which is like, wow, mind blown. <laughs> this is an astonishing book. I feel thrilled just to be so close to it. <laughs> So the world of Doctor Who did have many, many insane things in it. Have we got, have we got time for this one real quick one, John? Oh, yes, please, I can't please leave share this with me. And then this, Katie has something to share with us as well. But they, go on. They, often, um, they often publish books on uh, anniversaries. Uh, for example, this one was published near the 30th anniversary. It's called The Doctor's 30 Years of Time Travel by Adrian Rigglesford. It's famously riddled with mistakes, um, mostly typos. Kids, you the kids who are here won't know what this means, so I'm assuming that that's okay. Um, but there's a... I just want to read the description of the, plan the uh, episode, the story, The Rescue, which reads... Starts off, uh, written by David Whitaker, two episodes, on the planet Dildo... <laughs> I think they know what it means, Ben. <laughs> it's, meant, it's meant to be Dido, but uh, 
Typo, typo. So that's the most infamous typo in all of Doctor Who publishing history. <laughs> sort of to share that with you. It also features an interview with Roger Delgado after he's dead. <laughs> wow. So now we're, we're nearly to the end, but there was a, a news story oh, yes, connected very to the show recent. from this week that you have Yeah, repeating. yeah, yeah. Um, there was uh, an Essex skip hire firm. In, in England, they arrived at a house to collect one of their skips and found that the TARDIS-like bin was brimming with 14,000 Doctor Who target books. Right? Um, the firm's bosses couldn't bring themselves to pulp the massive literary hall, thank God, and put them all on eBay under one lot. And seven days of bidding started at just 99p. Okay, so... A guy called David uh, Dovey, or Dovey, he dreamt of buying the books and handing them out to schools across the country because it was a Doctor Who book that introduced him to his love of reading as a child. Um, he got together with a bunch of friends. Some people said, yes, you should do this. And there were only 35 bids and they got the set of books for £656. This has only just happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, he says, Doctor Who changed my life. Before that reading was boring, said David. Having worked in schools, I thought it would be amazing to get the books and hand them out to schools to inspire other youngsters. I never thought I could actually do it. It is, after all, the 50th anniversary for Doctor Who and I thought the books would be incredibly popular. So basically what they've done is they've um, put out the word and they've invited schools across the UK to say, yes, we'd like some books and they're going to try and get them across the country, just say eight books per school um, so that they'll be in the library and they're calling it Mad Fans with Box of Books, <laughs> with a box of books um, and uh, they've got a blog. It's at targetwho.blogspot.co.uk and we'll put a link on the Splendid Chaps website. They're, they're also on Twitter at Target yep. Who. Yep. And uh, the latest um, blog post, which was just... Uh, yesterday, says he says, I want to clear up a slight misunderstanding that some readers may have about our project. Some people may think that this project is about Doctor Who. It is not. It is about something more important than Doctor Who. I realise that's a shocking statement for what? some of you. <laughs> this project is about children's literacy, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, and he says, for, for us at Target Who, that first book that made us lifelong readers was a Doctor Who book. Oh. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh. So they're inviting people to go to the to the blog site and uh, sign up. And also, um, because they think they probably won't be able to reach every school in the country, they're encouraging Doctor Who fans to go to their local bookshop and buy a Doctor Who book of any sort of new Who and donate it to their local school library. It's fantastic. Can you please thank our guests, Katie Purvis and Dave Hoskins? Now, usually at the end of a Splendid Chap show, we have a musical act. That's, that's been the tradition because there are many, many obscure and terrible Doctor Who songs out there and we're going to make our way through all of them by the Sadly, end of the run. none of them are about Doctor Who books. At least you couldn't find any that were. No, and we thought for something about literacy and, and reading, we should try something different. Now, we mentioned there were some very strange books in the past and uh, there was also a series called Doctor Who Make Your Own Adventure. Yes, because Choose Your Own Adventure is actually copyright. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't do that. But if... Basically, they are choose-your-own-adventure books, but about the Doctor, they were published with illustrations of Colin Baker's face, and in fact, it's his characterisation that more or less comes out, but they were clearly written by someone who likes Doctor Who but didn't really care about 
anything like continuity uh, because the Colin Baker Doctor travels with Perry, yes, but also Turlow um, and Harry Sullivan. And at one point you go looking for the Doctor with Drax and Canine. We thought that the best person to present that to you would be the star of ABC One's Choose Your Own Adventure and <laughs> Unbelievable. Please welcome Lawrence Leung. Now, look, we don't really know how this is going to work. Uh, most people don't when they read a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. good point. Good point. Fatarded. <laughs> um, so, now, we, we thought rather than start from the very beginning, which might be a bit dull, we'd, um, we'd start you somewhere into the story. Uh, uh, can we please have a number at random from the audience between, say, one and four? There's a hand up here. 42. Oh, why not? Right. Why not? Stretch, yeah, we'll stretch the bounds. <laughs> I like the cut uh, of your jib, sir. <laughs> by, by the way, I've, I've dressed up today and then I realised this is a podcast, so... Uh, <laughs> A lot of effort. Uh, I don't know if I look like the 11th Doctor or more like a hipster weatherman, but uh, <laughs> this will do, this will do. Uh, okay, here we go. 42. <clears throat> so this is called, uh, first of all, Make Your Own Adventure with Doctor Who, Crisis in Space. When isn't there a crisis in space? Um, have you ever longed to climb aboard the TARDIS and enter another dimension? Meet the Doctor and join him in outwitting his enemies. Well, now it's your chance, exclamation mark. All you need is a pair of dice... A pe this is too much effort. A pair of dice, a pencil, and a little... This sounds like MacGyver all of a sudden. A little bit of luck and your wits about you. Are you ready? Okay, so we'll start off... Oh, I should also point out Michael Holt is the uh, author of that. I have to say that for fair use, copyright reasons. Per who's Perry, by the way? Is that like... Who's Perry? Perry? Oh, <laughs> no. Who it's, okay. it's okay. It's okay, safe I understand. Space there's no, there's no wrong the way to like Doctor Who. Okay. Okay. Safe space, safe I've, space. I've got the Encyclopedia of Companions. This is Perry. This is Perry here. Ah, yeah. So it's not just a Nando source. She's American. <laughs> so I, listen, I, I have a, 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 you know, a bright spark of interest in Doctor Who. Then I come here and it's like staring into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but I'm told in the library you're not allowed to blink, so what does that mean? Anyway. There she is. There she is. Oh, hottie. Yeah. <laughs> safe space, safe space. Okay. <laughs> safe space for her too, Lauren. Perry peers at the... Oh, no, here we are. Sorry. Safely back at the TARDIS, you tell the Doctor what you think is going to happen. So he ought to track Garth, Doctor. Garth's the baddie, I He's imagine. He's the bad guy. Yeah. Garth Hades is his name. Garth Hades. <laughs> With a name like Garth, it's... Terrible. Okay, anyway. Wise decision, Chris. The doctor congratulates you. Sexist. So they're assuming that all the readers are named Chris. Uh, it's a non-gender specific name, Lawrence. Oh, yeah, that is true. They picked it on purpose. Christine. Oh, yes. Or oh, Chris. I'll just keep going. Uh, <laughs> doctor. Tolo calls from the radar scan screen. Look, he's off again. Garth in his... Am I doing the right voice? Garth in his module into space. Just launching now. Tolo... Is Tolo a child? Turlo, Turlo. He certainly talks like a child. He's, he's this one. He's this one. <laughs> he like he's on ecstasy. He's this one, Lawrence. Visualise him. He's like oh. an English schoolboy who's secretly an alien. But don't worry about that. <laughs> oh, I need my motivation, obviously. He's like the Doctor Who version of Harry Potter, okay. essentially. But older. <laughs> okay, okay. Tolo calls. He has a lock on, Doctor. Retro rockets firing. Where he's off to, Doctor? The Doctor does a quick calculation on the computer, then announces, my guess is, in orbit around Mars, from the perimeters, I reckon. Doctor, Turlo cuts him off short. Cuts him short. UFO in sight. Perry peers through the green ball on the screen. Hmm, looks more like a mouldy potato to me. 
She's sassy, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. American. Okay. Uh, that'll be Mars's other moonlet, Deimos, the doctor says. Then he pauses. On the other hand, it, where's the point do we choose what to do? <laughs> this is going on forever. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, it could be the black hole. The one Garth is threatening to pull us into orbit. And where? Round Mars. The devil. Why round Mars of all places? Doctor, Perry asks. Why? The doctor laughs a little laugh. <laughs> Moving easily to the TARDIS's console. Why? So we'll think that uh, it is one of Mars's twin moonlets. That's why. Bam. <laughs> Take that, Perry, you sassy girl. Okay. You mean, Tillo replies, stammering. I do, the doctor says grimly. Garth's dastardly plan is to hoover us up into the black hole of his soon into space orbit. That's naughty. Then, no, then nothing will stop him. He'll stop at nothing. First the TARDIS, then Mars, then the Earth, then all the planets. No, you manage to gasp. You can't believe your ears. Yes, the doctor says. In short, the whole galaxy, the entire Milky Way goes down into the black hole. So you see, everyone, this UFO of yours, Tulo, has to be scouted out. Now, who will volunteer for this mission? Me, Tulolo says gamely. Not me, Perry corrects him. I. <laughs> that's a bit rich, considering... I'm pretty the sure that's not even correct. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's kind of ironic. There's so many grammar errors already. <laughs> the doctor looks at her sternly. No, not you, Perry. Ladies last on this trip. See? <laughs> Yeah, Sexist enough. doctor. So this was written in the 70s, was it? 80s? 85. 85, 86. Okay, still. That settles it, doctor. You exclaim, I'll go. This is where we enter the story, finally. <laughs> you don your spacesuit and make ready to leave the TARDIS. Good luck, Chris. Perry pats you on the back as you slip into the escape hatch. You step out and begin your spacewalk. Tulo's in charge of paying out, paying out your precious lifeline. Hang out? Oh, I get handing it out. I thought just teasing your lifeline. That's another way of saying it. 86. Uh, then you see it. Do you approach closer? Go to page 23. Or do you slip back safely to TARDIS? Go to page 9. I mean, really, what, what, what do you want to do? TARDIS or closer? Closer or TARDIS? Closer. Okay, TARDIS it is. No, closer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Because if you go back to the TARDIS, that would probably be the end of the story. Here we go. Rotten luck, Chris. It's definitely had Hadid's terrifying invention, the hellish artificial black hole. Down you go, spaghetti-fied. So that, sadly, is that. The end of the adventure, so try another one. Yeah. Oh, oh you, you died. <laughs> I, just, I just want to point out, this, this is the first... This was the first uh, Choose Your Own Adventure book I ever read in my entire life. Make Your Own start, Adventure. Make Your Own Adventure, I beg your pardon, um, of that sort, uh, where not only is the characterization of you horrendous, but also um, the characters that you talk to in the book at the start, the Dr. Perry and Turlo basically explain to you that it's a Choose Your Own Adventure story, <laughs> and if it doesn't work out, well, maybe it'll go better next time. Ah. What does that mean? Well, that went... Less excitingly than I hoped. Uh, please thank Lawrence Liu. Thank you.
Oh. We all died. I'm quite sad. <laughs> That's pretty much the end of the show. We recommend that you you could find many, all or none of these books in your local libraries. And um, a lot of a lot of the Melbourne libraries do have copies, or did uh, have copies of a lot of the BBC books and a few of the new adventures. And they are still making new Doctor Who novels. Like I was um, amazed a few, uh, just a year or two ago when Michael Moorcock wrote an original Doctor Who novel. And if you don't know who Michael Moorcock is, find out. He's amazing. Uh, he wrote uh, a whole bunch of books. Um, a very influential fantasy author, and he wrote a, a Doctor Who novel. And it's is it amazing. Any good? Uh, it's it is actually. I haven't finished it yet, but it's it's pretty mental. I love it. <laughs> Um, and there's lots of other new ones for the 50th anniversary. They're doing a series of very short e-books that are for children, uh, one for each doctor each month um, that kind of matches the timetable of Splendid Chaps by different well-known authors. Um, Ian Koifer has written one who did the Artemis Fowl books. He wrote the first one. Although I've got to say, uh, in his book, the first doctor in the first paragraph says the word Gallifrey. And from that moment, I was like, did you even watch the show? Um, but anyway, it's, so there's a lot of new books coming out and you will find some of those there new There is libraries. a new cookbook coming out too. It's called oh. Dining with the Doctor, yes. the Unauthorised Hoovian Cookbook. It's, it's already out. Dad? I've got that. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, I've got it. Of course it. you have. Um, it it's doesn't have nearly as many puns as this one. <laughs> the Gary Downey one. Are you guys going to have, like, a dinner special? We should have, like, we, a we episode. We actually do have plans. So, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> of our series of 11 podcasts, of which there will be 26, um, <laughs> we, do, we do want to do one about Doctor Who food. Thank you all so much for joining us here today. Splendorchaps.com, you can find more of our podcasts. You can join us again. And until we next meet, thank, thank you. you. It's, it's good. good. Keep warm. been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chats, Katie Purvis, Dave Hoskin and Lawrence Lung. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sampler Hall Studios. You can find us at SplendidChats.com and at Splendid Chats on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. Thank you, Northcote Library, by the way, for putting this on. Big round of applause for Darwin Libraries. <laughs>